Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's number is 56. That's the average age of the award winners in the acting categories at the 2018 Oscars. Sam Rockwell, Allison Janney, Gary Oldman, and Francis McDormand. In that group, Sam Rockwell, who's almost 50 years old, is the spring chicken of the group, which I love. So 56 years old, average age of all the award winners for acting at the 2018 Oscars. So what does that mean? That means no starlets. That means no new up-and-comers. That means people who have paid serious dues, and three of those four are first-time Oscar winners and are three of the best actors that we've had in this or any generation on screen. Sam Rockwell's fantastic, always has been chiefly underrated, almost has never been given chances to lead movies. Allison Janney, who's won every acting award known to man, especially for her television work, goes into movies for you know a, a rare time. She doesn't do a lot of movie work, but she does I, Tanya, and of course she gets nominated for an Oscar and wins it. So that's her first Oscar, even though you feel like you've seen her accept a million awards before. And Gary Oldman, on only his second nomination, which is the crime of the century in terms of the Oscars, if you listen to this show, you know Gary Oldman's my favorite actor of all time, living or dead. I think he's the greatest screen actor ever. And he finally gets an Oscar win. And then, of course, Francis McDormand, who's like the icon of all female acting, you know, movie icons for my money. I mean, I'll take her over Meryl Streep any day of the week. So there you go. 56 years old, the average age of acting award winners at the Oscars. So acting in Hollywood right now, it might be an old person's game. I love it. That's fantastic. This is the Stream Police Podcast. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Looking for a Netflix recommendation that's worth two hours of your time? Or a forgotten album that's worth picking up on iTunes? OverdueReview.com is your destination for unbiased, unpretentious, thoughtful opinions on movies, TV, and music from every era. OverdueReview.com. Better late. Hi, everybody. I'm Clint Davis, the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com and your friendly chief of police here at the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much for spreading the word and listening to the show. Always appreciate it. We bring it to you once a month here, courtesy of OverdueReview.com and our friends at ACAST. And this month's going to be a little different because our chief music officer, Andy Sedlak, is off duty this month. He's actually in trouble because he fired his uh, he fired his weapon 
uh, without proper cause. So I had to take his gun and his badge away from him for a month. No pay for a month, uh, which makes it no different from any other month. But uh, So we'll hear from Andy again next time. But uh, you got just me this time. Clint Davis, your old buddy, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. Of course, I don't have anything against young actors. I loved um, Sir Ronan this year. Last year, I was, or I think it was two years ago, I was banging the drum hard for Jacob Tremblay to win something for Room. And I, I liked Timothy Chalamet a lot in Call Me By Your Name. He was very good in Lady Bird as well. So I have nothing against young actors, but it is cool because Hollywood is so fake and it's so all about just being young all the time. The old actors have to appear young. They have to act young or they're out of out of touch. And so to see these older actors, middle-aged actors, winning all the awards, I thought was fantastic. I'm going to expand on that a little bit later on when I talk about the Oscars. And before I start the show, let me go ahead and and light my stogie up. I'm sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, the beautiful Queen City, right on the banks of the flooded Ohio River right now. And I'm, I'm smoking a stogie in my closet. I'm not smoking it yet, but I'm about to. Okay, let me go ahead and spark it. Some cops like donuts. I like stogies. Oh, that's good, too. Let me get to a great email I got from my friend Alex, one of our great loyal listeners here on the Stream Police. The, the I knew this email was going to be fantastic right from the subject line. He says, question for Officer Davis of Stream PD. Fantastic subject line. I was already hooked. That's that's writing 101 right there. So Alex writes in and says, I'm currently rewatching one of your favorites, The Sopranos. It seems like every time I turn it on, I get hungry. The food on that show looks so damn good. Whether it's Artie's gourmet dishes at Vesuvio or the gabagool that Tony grabs from the fridge, I want to taste everything the characters are eating, and they eat a lot. So Alex says, are there any foods from movies or TV shows that you've always wanted to try and any particular scenes that make you hungry? Um, first off, let me just say that re-watching The Sopranos is one of the greatest gifts that mankind has given to its fellow man in the last, you know, five billion years of planet Earth's existence. That is truly rewatching that show is the richest television experience I think that there is to be had. And I don't say that lightly because I think there's a lot of great TV to watch and rewatch, but The Sopranos is just it doesn't get any better, doesn't get any deeper, doesn't get any more layered. And it's just it's a great it's got everything, so many laughs, so many brutal, honest, violent moments, um, heart wrenching moments, and so much truth comes through these characters. And you're talking about some of the most dynamic characters ever put on TV, especially right at the center of it with the late, great James Gandolfini's Tony Soprano. So, but you bring up a great point about The Sopranos. It is a show full of food, and it follows this Italian-American family. And why would it not be surrounded by... I mean, the main office that Tony works out of is, well, one of them's at a strip club, and the other one is at a deli. So, I mean, it's constant sandwiches, and it's constant, you know, espresso with Polly Walnuts drinking that stuff out there on the sidewalk with his little pinky up with that little cup. There's so much good food on The Sopranos, and I have to say that, of all the shows, is the one that always made me the most hungry. Um, And I was the same way. I had never really eaten ziti before I watched The Sopranos years ago, the first time, and I've and ziti became one of my favorite foods. I order baked ziti all the time, and it's totally because on The Sopranos, it's one of Carmela and Tony's favorite uh, favorite dishes. I always they always talk about eating ziti, baked ziti, and it sounds amazing. And yeah, gabagool. 
I've, it's been pronounced several different ways. I've heard uh, you know people say it different ways, but gabagool is the way I say it. It's a type of meat, um, a deli meat, and uh, I I was ordering that all the time. If I went to a deli place and and if I saw it on the menu, I was always ordering it after watching The Sopranos because it just sounded great. Tony ate it all the time, so why not? He was a big fat dude, you know. He had to know what he was talking about. Um, so The Sopranos totally made me hungry every time I watch it. No question about it. That's that's a great point you bring up about the show. As far as another show that made me really hungry, this is gonna this is like the weirdest answer to that question ever. But the first one that popped into my head when I read your email, Alex, was a scene a long time ago when I was a kid. I was watching Ren and Stimpy, one of my favorite shows. I've talked about it before here on the Stream Police. And in one episode of Ren and Stimpy, it was a classic episode. Um, Ren and Stimpy were astronauts. All right, so they were in space and they were they were astronauts, and that went about as well as you could expect it. But while they were on board the space station or the space shuttle, whatever they were on, I can't remember what it was, they, they like, went nuts. And at one point, Ren starts to eat a bar of soap, like a white bar of just plain white soap. And I swear to God, when I was a kid and I watched that, it looked so good. It's like the tastiest-looking ice cream bar-looking bar of soap that I have ever seen. And it, they don't do anything to it. It's just a white bar of soap, but it looks, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the, the bites and the teeth marks that he leaves in it or how much it looks like Ren is enjoying it, but I always just wanted to eat a bar of soap after watching that episode of Ren and Stimpy. Every time. It made me want to eat a bar of soap so bad, and I really thought about it, and I would look at our bars of soap. I was a kid. I didn't try it. I didn't do it because I just somewhere how knew that it was going to taste so poorly um, and that you weren't supposed to eat soap. But I really wanted to. Like, it made me want to eat soap. Like how some people, after they watched Jackass, wanted to try to jump over cars and, and they ended up killing themselves. I wanted to eat a bar of soap. So there you go. That's what made me the hungriest, I think, of anything I ever saw on TV until The Sopranos. But The Sopranos is the ultimate um you know, feeding frenzy television show. So great question, Alex. I hope you're enjoying rewatching the Sopranos. It is the gift that keeps on giving. So uh, thank you very much for your email. If you want to write me, it's theclintdavis at gmail.com. All right. I talked about the Sopranos a couple episodes ago on our fantastic segment, the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And let me go ahead and get to that segment now with a brand new entry into the canon of greatest TV theme songs ever. And this one, while not technically a weekly TV show, carries a theme song with it that you will instantly recognize. And let me just drop a name on you right now. Leo Arnaud. Leo Arnaud was a French-American film composer who died in 1991 at the age of 86. All right, so this guy's been dead for a while. But during his lifetime, Arnaud gave all of us one of the greatest and most identifiable TV theme songs of all time. In fact... I bet you will instantly recognize it. That is none other than Bugler's Dream, which has been used as the opening theme to American broadcast coverage of the Olympics since 1964 when ABC had the games. So going back to 1964, this tune has played before almost every Olympics broadcast. short 
46-second-long masterpiece is the definition of majesty and grandeur. And it makes you stop everything the moment you hear it. I don't know. How, I don't care where you are. You're in the kitchen. You're in the bathroom. Whatever, wherever it is you are. You can be outside and hear the TV playing through the window. When you hear that, those timpani drums, and you hear you know, that brass crank up, it makes you stop everything and at very least look toward your TV. It's like a siren song, man. So some more about Bugler's Dream. ABC also used this song for its legendary show, The Wide World of Sports, back in the day, which makes it a rare double TV theme song. It was used for two different you know, shows, two different broadcasts over the years. Now, when NBC bought the rights to the games in 1988, the network actually used a different theme for those games before bringing Bugler's Dream back in 1992, because I can only imagine the flood, the emails, well, it wouldn't have been emails in 1992, but the calls and the letters and the faxes that flooded into NBC's office when they got rid of Bugler's Dream for the 1988 Olympics. I mean, I can't even imagine the Olympics without it. <laughs> Of course, Bugler's Dream is not alone in Olympics theme music these days. There's also an awesome fanfare that was written by film scoring icon John Williams that's used constantly by NBC during its coverage of the games. But Bugler's Dream, which is just this opening fanfare part with its thumping timpani drums and that blasting brass, is always the first thing you hear when it's time to watch the games. And I, for one, hope that it rains forever. That's why Bugler's Dream by Leo Arnaud, is my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. What a kick-ass song, man. It's so awesome. Even John Williams, who's like the ultimate badass of movie music composing, even he was like, man, this kicks ass. I can't get rid of this. I've got to incorporate it into my own stuff. So even John Williams still kept Bugler's Dream in there and then put his own music right after it. That's when you know you got a worthy piece of music, when even, even Johnny Williams has to bow down before it. Now, speaking of Olympics coverage, the Olympics, of course, are a major television um, event every two years. And we just got done with the South Korea um, Winter Olympics, and overall, I really enjoyed the games. But before the Winter Olympics started, I shared on Facebook my thoughts on the games, the Winter Games specifically, not the Summer Games, but the Winter Games being mostly a showcase for people who grew up rich enough to play these weird sports and to ski full-time, like to get good enough at skiing to where they could compete in it. That takes a lot of time and a lot of money and equipment and lessons and trips to the slopes and you know, I, it's just a, it's a very winter sports in general, I think, at the Olympics are so exclusive versus the inclusive sports that I feel like are showcased at the Summer Olympics. You know, I mean, you've got like in the Summer Olympics swimming, pretty much anybody can swim. I mean, there's so many YMCA's and, and, and community pools all around that you can even like if you live in the poorest neighborhood, you can find a pool to swim in. Running obviously requires no equipment whatsoever and not even a place to go you can just run on the sidewalk you don't have to have an actual loop to run around uh, basketball of course in the summer olympics anybody can play basketball it's one of the most inclusive sports that's why it's so you know popular around the world soccer is the exact same way and 
Again, it's a great summer Olympic sport. So the summer games, to me, much more inclusive than the winter games. Winter games are like the rich, weirdo people sports. But I have to say that I did have a blast watching the games this year. And I don't know what it was. I don't know if it's that mandatory every night time on the couch watching you know, like some live action with my wife that made it so fun. But we just had a good time watching it together this year. And I think the Olympics are better if you have somebody to watch it with. Watching it alone, as I've done several years, just not the same. You know, it's just it's great to watch these moments together and to see these these big moments play out uh, live, especially. And now these were all the way across the globe. So it was most everything was pretty much tape delayed. But still, I had a blast watching them. And Beth and I watched every single night, almost, and I was legitimately sad to see them end. I keep saying, "I'm like, man, I'm sad. The Olympics are over. I don't. What are we gonna? What are we gonna do now? We just got to get back to watching shows again, I guess." But I do have to say, while I enjoyed the Olympics, NBC's coverage did leave a lot to be desired, and I want to give you a couple pros and cons here from NBC's coverage of the 2018 Olympics. And let me start with the positives because there really weren't that many, but I do want to give a shout-out to a couple positives from the NBC um, coverage of the Olympics. The ice skating commentators, first off, Terry Gannon, Tara Lipinski, and Johnny Weir were very good and very sharp. As always, they were honest, critical, brutal and that's what I like in a, in a sports commentator. Terry Gannon is like the perfect balance to those two. He sits there in his just standard suit. You know, sometimes he's got a nice colored tie or a pocket square or something. But, he, you know, he's a pretty straight-laced guy sitting next to these two, um, you know, these two over-the-top commentators and former pro skaters. So Gannon's like the perfect balance to those two. And he's a very good announcer. And he brought a, a needed everyman voice, I thought to the broadcast because if you watched any of the figure skating you noticed Gannon was the guy asking like obvious questions for novices. I'm sure he knew the answer to some of these things, but he was asking because most of the people watching, this is the only time every four years that they're ever gonna watch figure skating. They're not watching it. They're not watching the nationals or the worlds or any of that crap. They're only watching the Olympics. So, you know, we need a refresher every time it comes up. And it's kind of a confusing sport as far as the scoring goes because it's really turned into like a math project versus like a, a an actual display of artistry. So that that is kind of frustrating also, and it's good to have it explained by people like Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir who know what they're talking about. I also, one moment that I really liked from Terry Gannon was when one skater came out and skated a figure skating routine to ACDC music. And Tara and Johnny absolutely hated it. But, you know, Terry Gannon was raving about this thing, and I just thought it was a great moment kind of showing the difference between these people. Terry Gannon was the voice of the everyman, and people loved him for it online. That moment to me made, you know, Lipinski and Weir sound like snobs, which I guess you would probably be a snob if you were a professional figure skater. I mean, think about it. It's one of the most snobby sports there is. I mean, it's basically art. Uh, it's like the most artistic sport that you can get. So, of course, they're probably snobs, I'm sure. And they're both rich, and they've been around the sport for a long time. So they take it very seriously, and they they hang on to some of the old-school ideas of it. They, they're not you know, listening to ACDC probably on their drive-in. But I also want to give a shout-out to Tanith White and Scott Hamilton, who were fantastic as well in the booth doing some more skating coverage. Tanith White especially to me gets a shout-out because she not only got me to understand what ice dancing was – but she got me to be interested in it. So I'm giving NBC's ice skating commentators a lot of credit, and that's good for them because that's their marquee sport uh, anymore. 
One more pro for you on NBC's coverage, bobsled, luge, and skeleton coverage, and the commentators of those events, Lee Diffie, Duncan Kennedy, John Morgan, and Bree Schaff. Those people get huge props from me for bringing a ton of life to those events. Now, those are exciting events and death-defying events anyway, but the commentators really made that clear by calling every race as if it was a gold medal run. Lee Diffie, especially, putting him in the booth was a stroke of genius because this guy is an Australian announcer who's known for calling auto racing. And the idea that you would bring a guy who's known for calling Formula One auto racing into the booth to call bobsledding makes perfect sense. I mean, it's the closest thing to racing, except for maybe speed skating, but it's the closest thing to racing that you're going to get, um, especially it's you know almost like drag racing or something. So it was brilliant to bring this guy in, and he had such a passion for it, and he just made me really care about these bobsledding events, even though and the luge and the skeleton, even though Team USA is like nowhere to be found in these events typically. But it was it was worth watching for Americans because Lee Diffie was just brilliant behind the microphone. He was definitely a breakout star of these games, and I, you know I'd like to see him move up to another sport so he gets more time in prime time. But I don't know because I don't know who could do bobsled, luge, and skeleton any better. He just he nailed it. So big shout out to Lee Diffie and the uh, NBC crew doing those sports. It's been a head to head fight with Francesco Friedrich. But let's get to the negatives. I know what you're here for, the cons. What did I hate about NBC's coverage of the 2018 Winter Olympics? First off, let me start with skiing commentary. The commentary from Dan Hicks and Bodie Miller was absolutely horrible. So boring. So dry. Nothing exciting about it at all from either of these guys. Talk about a sport that is intense and death-defying. Alpine skiing. I mean, these guys and these women are going like 80 miles per hour on ski slopes, straight down, making, you know, zigzag turns, jumping through the air. And I mean, at any moment, they could crash and break every bone in their body. And yet, if you listen to Bodie Miller doing color commentary on Alpine skiing during the Olympics, he sounded like he's calling a chess tournament. I mean, this guy could not have been less interested in what he was doing at all. And this was Miller's first time being on the big stage. This was his first Olympics where he was, he was being a commentator and he, he totally face planted. I mean, he sounded absolutely just completely uninto it. And he made me not really care about the skiing so much. And that's one of the sports I actually enjoy watching. 2015, 16 season Bodie ended for great skiing. This hasn't been the same thing. And yeah, you can, the knee is certainly an issue. I, I want to point out, she also got married. And it's historically very challenging to race on the World Cup with the family or, or after being married. It's just, you know, not to blame the spouses, but I just want to toss that out there that it could be your husband's fault. Dan Hicks, the guy who was doing the play-by-play side, He's never been one of my favorites anyway. Maybe it's just the fact that he looks like an orthodontist, but I've just never been a fan of Dan Hicks. But Miller himself was awful, truly awful. They need to move away from Bodie Miller immediately and give Lindsey Vaughn a shot in four years on the Alpine skiing beat. I'd love to hear Lindsey Vaughn calling these skiing events alongside Lee Diffie. Put Lee Diffie on skiing, man. He would nail that. Get Dan Hicks out of there. Throw him down to the fucking curling you know, arena and let him call some curling matches until he's ready to come back to the big boy leagues. Another thing I hated about NBC's coverage, I don't know if you noticed this, but the total lack of podium coverage. I mean, since these games were massively tape delayed, that means NBC cuts a lot of things out that they deem uninteresting. 
which basically included every podium moment that wasn't from an American winner. And when I say the podium moment, I'm talking about, you know, when they show the people who won the event standing on the podium first, second, third, and they raise the flags up and they play the national anthem of whoever won the event. During the Summer Olympics, the Rio Games just two years ago, I felt like they showed almost every podium event in primetime. And maybe that's because the Rio Games were same time zone as us. So as the Eastern time zone, I should say. So everything was pretty much live as it was going on. So they couldn't really cut things out. But they still didn't have to show them. But they were showing them a lot more during the summer games. But I'm telling you, during these Olympic Games, I don't recall hearing a single other country's national anthem played at all. And that is fucked up, man, because the Olympics are the definition of a global event. And when you pretend that the Olympics are basically all about Team USA, all about how America's doing, everybody wants to watch Team USA, you are doing everyone a disservice. Not only were we not, you know, on top in the medal count by any means, we weren't even close. Uh, but I mean, when I watch something like the Olympics, I want to see, I want to learn about other countries. I want to see what makes them so great. I want to know what they're great great for. I want to hear their national anthem. When am I ever going to hear the national anthem for Norway, except for at the Winter Olympics? I'm never going to hear it. So, you know, I mean, don't take that away from kids or anyone who's trying to learn about other, you know, nations by watching the Olympics. It's a great showcase for the world. And when NBC just makes it all about Team USA, it it just becomes like you're watching, you know, Major League Baseball or something. I mean, who cares? It takes the takes the whole, what's special about the Olympics completely out of it. I just think that podium moments are, by definition, what the Olympics are all about. This is what they work for, is to be on that podium. They don't work for it to be in the competition as much as they work for it to be on that podium. That's where they want to be. So I feel like you got to show the podium moments. The national anthems aren't long, man. I mean, you're talking about you're taking a minute and a half to show us. But sadly, that's enough time for somebody to turn the channel. So I guess they they thought, you know... Unless it's the the fucking star-spangled banner, then nobody wants to hear it, which I hope isn't the truth, but I don't know. I'm not in, I haven't uh, read the focus group reports. Another thing I couldn't stand about NBC's coverage of the uh, 2018 Olympics. Did you know that Pyeongchang, South Korea is actually pronounced Pyeongchang? It's actually said Pyeongchang, South Korea. And if you did not know that, it's probably because you were watching NBC. At Pyeongchang's Olympic Stadium. I read this little factoid, which I thought was pretty interesting. The network actually directed its broadcasters to incorrectly pronounce the city's name as Pyeongchang because one executive in charge of NBC's coverage said that it sounded, quote, cleaner. So they actually told their announcers, don't pronounce it the way it's pronounced Pyeongchang, pronounce it as Pyeongchang. Because it sounds cleaner. I mean, that's the most American thing I have ever heard in my life, to incorrectly pronounce the name of the city just because it sounds better. I mean, that that's <laughs> I have no words for that. That's incredible. So people in Asia and people especially in South Korea were just shitting all over NBC for that move. And I don't blame them. I, I, I didn't even realize that until later. I, I had no idea it was pronounced Pyeongchang. So if you go to South Korea and you're asking people about Pyeongchang, I mean, you're going to sound like the biggest backwoods hick that there's ever been. And it's all because of NBC. It's not your fault. You didn't know. It, that's how they said it every time. Pyeongchang, Pyeongchang. You can trust these guys, right? Mike Tirico and everybody, they look trustworthy. But no, you can't. At Pyeongchang's Olympic Stadium. And speaking of Mike Tirico, 
Obviously, he's no Bob Costas, but he replaced Costas this year. And the only thing I'm going to say about Tarico is look up Mike Tarico. Um, ESPN, those guys have all the fun. Look that up. Mike, Mike Tarico ESPN book. If you look it up, you'll read the stories, the horror stories from women who worked at ESPN with Mike Tarico, who years ago when this book was published, admitted publicly that he sexually harassed them, that he was constantly, you know, ogling them, trying to get them to go on dates with him when he was married, and that he was basically like this horrible stalker who worked with him, and now he's got the primo job in sports. He's he's replaced Bob Costas, the ultimate, you know, consummate professional in sports broadcasting history. Mike Tirico now has his job, and even amidst everything like Me Too and Time's Up and all that, NBC didn't mention it at all, and just and they gave Mike Tirico the job, and now you have to watch him every time uh, on the Olympics. I mean, it's essentially like having Matt Lauer hosting the Olympics every night. So look it up, Mike Tirico, ESPN book, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, it's just I, I can't believe that no one made a big deal out of this, but the guy was a total creep. Hi, everyone. Mike Tirico at the International Broadcast Center in Pyeongchang, where tonight in primetime, South Korea will welcome in the world as the 23rd Olympic Winter Games officially begin with the opening ceremony. And finally, the last thing I'm going to say in shitting on NBC's uh, coverage of the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang is their coverage of the opening and closing ceremony. Just, uh, you know, uh, several big gaffes during this. And this is some of the stuff that, that people watch more than even the events themselves. The network cut tons of stuff from the closing ceremony that I did not realize, including another podium moment. And they cut a couple speeches that were apparently quite moving. If you look it up on Deadspin, Deadspin, NBC closing ceremony, if you search that, you'll see like some of the things that they cut, which was a ton of stuff from the closing ceremony that I guess NBC deemed boring. So, you know, there's that again. But during the opening ceremony, the network shot itself in the foot a couple more times by making some false statements. Like uh, when uh, NBC's commentator, Joshua Cooper Ramo, said that South Korea owes Japan for much of its transformation over the years, when Japan actually occupied the country for decades, and people who live there still, like, resent the Japanese completely. And he said, hey... They need to thank the Japanese for this. People in South Korea were pissed, and NBC had to actually apologize for that, and that was before the games had really even started. Katie Couric, also who co-hosted the opening ceremony, said during the broadcast that people from the Netherlands were so good at speed skating because when the canals of Amsterdam froze over, they skate on them. For as long as those canals have existed, the Dutch have skated on them to get from place to place, to race, race each other, and also to have fun. She actually said that during the broadcast, and apparently it's not true at all. I have no idea where she read that, where she heard it. Did she, like, read it in a travel blog listicle or something five minutes before the broadcast? I don't know. But people in the Netherlands were, you know, again, shitting all over NBC because that is not true at all. I mean, it's like the kind of thing that you would—it's like the kind of mythical thing that you might tell kids or something— that they this guy got good at skating bike because he was skating on the Amsterdam canals. I mean, that sounds like the kind of legend, you know, they made up about George Washington or Babe Ruth or something. But hey, Katie Couric thought it was it was real enough to mention during the biggest broadcast of NBC's Olympics coverage. So that's my take on the Winter Games. You know, the the competition themselves competitions themselves fun to watch. I swear to God, I don't think Team USA would medal in anything if we hadn't invented snowboarding, because um, pretty much all most of our medals came from snowboarding. It seems like. And the women's ice hockey team, got to give them huge credit as well. So much fun to watch them finally get over the hill. And I love seeing those women 
uh, doing all those interviews after they won the gold medal because, I mean, it's just not a sport that gets a lot of coverage. So, so many great stories out of the Olympics every time they come around. That's why I look forward to them. I love the human element. I like the sports element a lot, too, but, man, those commentators and NBC just have a way of undermining the whole thing sometimes. So, uh, except for the couple people that I, I did mention at the top. So there's my take on the Olympics. If you had any thoughts on the games, uh, write me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. All right, I'm going to take a uh, quick pause here for a second, collect myself. I'm not going to send it to Andy because, like I said, he's off duty this month. Um, but I'm going to take it right back after this, and we're going to talk about the 2018 Oscars. What a ride it was, my friends. Let's get to it next here on the Stream Police Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. All right, you know, I've talked about it every year here on the show, and if you know me, you know that the Oscars to me are like the Super Bowl, as they are to many movie fans. I mean, I spend all my my year, I do watch a lot of TV, but I watch movies first and foremost, and movies are what I love. I don't care how good TV gets, it's never going to replace movies to me. Movies to me are the ultimate entertainment, and you just can't beat them. So I don't, people who say that television's better than movies these days and it passed movies, they're full of shit. I don't know what they're watching. They're not going to the right movies if that's the case. If you can find a 90 minute film that can tell you as much and be as deep a story as you can in a five season television series, then. There's nothing better than that. I mean, how can you you can't beat that? And there were so many great movies that came out last year. As I said in last month's episode where I ranked my top five movies of the year, I think it was the best year for movies in a long time. It was the best year that I can remember right off the top of my head, just top to bottom. Um, as a great year, I always think about 2007. 2007 was a great year for movies as well. Or was it 08? 07 or 08, the year that Michael Clayton and There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men, all those movies were in theaters. There were a lot of great films that year. But I feel like, um, and Juno, but I feel like this year was just even better. This was my one of my favorite years for movies ever. It was fantastic from top to bottom. So the Oscars, I was looking forward to them. And Beth was too. We always watch them. We always make picks against each other. She beats me every year. She beat me again this year. Um, she beat me only by one this year, which I was pretty thrilled about. But we put on the line whoever wins the Oscar 
pool gets to pick everything that we do for an entire weekend. So with no, you know, debate from the other person. So I think I won it one time and I took full advantage of it, but she always wins it. So every year there's definitely going to be a weekend where we just do whatever she wants to do and I don't get to pick anything. So, and the fact that she's pregnant right now also makes that, I think a doubly sweet victory for her uh, this time. So congrats, uh, congratulations again on beating me once again in Oscar picks. I, I like to pick with my heart, man, not my head. I pick with my heart. I also went against my good buddy John Garns in a little Oscar pool, and I don't know if John, you listen, you're listening to the show, but um, he kicked my ass too. He got almost every pick right. We did the, the major categories, and he got every one but Best Picture right. So uh, I'm just I got crushed by everybody this year. But let's talk about the Oscars themselves. Enough about me. Let's talk about the show. So as I said at the top of the show, older actors. And older talent was winning the awards like crazy uh, last night. I'm recording this the day after the Oscars aired. So in the marquee categories, everyone except McDormand was a first-time winner. And by the marquee categories, I mean all the acting. So four acting trophies, two screenwriting trophies, and the uh, best directing trophy. In every one of those categories, everyone was a first-time winner except for McDormand, who won her second um, for her work in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Guillermo del Toro won his first Best Directing Oscar. James Ivory won his first Oscar. Amazingly, I mean, James Ivory's 89 years old, and he finally won an Oscar. This was the guy from Merchant Ivory Productions back in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, and 90s. It made some of the most beautiful movies you've ever seen. One of the, like, forefathers of independent cinema. Um who became a household name after doing independent movies. And I just, for the first time, watched James Ivory's um, A Room with a View with Helena Bonham Carter and Maggie Smith and, and Judy Dench and and Daniel Day-Lewis, and I was floored, man. I loved it. I don't know how I went so long without seeing that movie, but if you want a romantic movie that's better than you know the average, you got to check out A Room with a View. Just a, a gorgeous film. But anyway, James Ivory won his first Oscar finally at the age of 89, for writing a screenplay for Call Me By Your Name. And it was, you know, my pick for the best screenplay of the year. I thought it was beautifully adapted, beautifully done. I never read the book, but um, I can't imagine that the book could be much better than the way that Ivory retold it. Jordan Peele also was a first-time Oscar nominee and first-time winner for his original screenplay for Get Out, which, as I said last uh, month, was one of my favorite movies of the year. I had it at number three in my uh, top five. And also, as I said before, Sam Rockwell, Allison Janney, and uh, Gary Oldman, all first-time winners. So in the marquee categories, everyone was a first-time winner except for Frances McDormand, which is good for the Oscars, I think. And the fact that these people are all respected and none of these are like questionable wins, also great for the Oscars as well. The average age of the winners goes up to 58 years old when you add in the director and both of the writing categories. Jordan Peele, at 39 years old, was by far the youngest winner of those categories. And Sam Rockwell, having 10 years on him, was the next youngest. So it's pretty pretty impressive. Um, as I said, I mean, established people. And Jordan Peele really being the only wild card who won. But everyone was thrilled about Jordan Peele winning that because his script for Get Out was just so imaginative and, and fantastic. And anyone who tells you otherwise is full of shit or angry. I will say the award winners themselves were very predictable, which is when I do poorly when it comes to Oscar picks because I don't like to pick what I hear are like the big wins, and maybe that's just me being prideful or whatever. I don't like picking who I'm reading and hearing about or like getting the most buzz. I don't like that because I don't want the Oscars to be predictable. I don't think they should be predictable. 
But this year they were. I, you know, I was disappointed to see that Lady Bird didn't win anything. But it is going to go down as a landmark still, um, a fan favorite. People loved that movie. People connected with that movie. It was so funny and also sad. Um, the uh, The Shape of Water, a beautiful, timeless movie that I think in 50 years people will still be looking at as a gem of cinematic history. It won Best Picture. Totally deserved it. I was glad to see The Shape of Water win it, even though it wasn't my pick for the best movie of the year. But I loved it. I had so much fun watching that movie. And like I said, it was just timeless, classic, gorgeous, beautiful movie. Fantastic. And uh, my favorite movie of the year, Phantom Thread, did win an Oscar. It won for Best Costumes, which totally uh, did deserve that, those beautiful you know, dresses that were made for the movie. Um, so I'm glad it did win something, although I still am wondering if Paul Thomas Anderson, the director and writer of it, is ever going to win an Oscar for Best Director. I- I'm, like, I'm thinking he's going to be like Martin Scorsese, who went until he was like 60 years old before he finally won the Best Director Oscar for The Departed, which is like the most long overdue Oscar of all time. I mean, everyone on earth agreed that he was arguably the the greatest director in American history. And, of course, you know, it took him forever to finally win a Best Directing trophy. So I don't know if it's going to happen for Paul Thomas Anderson ever. I think people at the award shows just don't really like him that much um, for whatever reason. I don't know, because he's made some of the greatest movies ever, and he still never won that award. But we'll see. He's still got a long – he's got a lot of more films left in him. If James Ivory can finally win one at 89, then I guess anything's possible. Let me talk about Jimmy Kimmel, the host of the show for the second year in a row. Kimmel did a nice job, I thought, talking about some serious issues. Here's how clueless Hollywood is about women. We made a movie called What Women Want, and it starred Mel Gibson. (laughs) Kind of all you need to know. He seemed, you know, more relaxed this year. Um, which comes with hosting it a second time. It's always a good thing, I think, to give a host a second year, as long as they didn't absolutely suck the first time. The Academy, as you're no doubt aware, uh, took action last year to expel Harvey Weinstein from their ranks. There were a lot of great nominees, but Harvey deserved it the most. And uh, the Academy kicked him out, and after they did, I was curious, so I looked it up. You know, the only other person to be expelled from the Academy ever was a character actor named Carmine Caridi. In 2004, he was kicked out for sharing screeners. Carmine Caridi got the same punishment as Harvey Weinstein for giving his neighbor a copy of Seabiscuit on VHS. But, you know, he was also taking a stab at the length of the show. He made this long-running joke um, about, you know, whoever had the shortest acceptance speech was going to win a jet ski not saying you shouldn't give a long speech but whoever gives the shortest speech tonight will go home with johnny tell them what they'll win it's a brand new jet ski cruising comfort in the 2018 kawasaki ultra 310lx the number one choice for watercraft enthusiasts retail price 17999 back to you jimmy and it was, you know, it was pretty funny. It was like the price is right. And it was a good long running joke. It was much funnier than last year's where he had this like feud with Matt Damon through the entire show. Uh, but, you know, the jet ski joke was so good that many of the winners on the biggest night of their lives, even Gary Oldman got in on the joke while they were doing their speeches. Dear friend down there, uh, Denzel, and um, I'm not going to, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to win the, uh, the, you know, the ski. Um <laughs> So that's when I think you know something landed. You know, just you got all these like iconic people going up and during the biggest speech of their lives, paying you know a little homage to 
this stupid joke that you did. So whoever the writer was that came up with that one, I think, uh, you know, had to be thrilled with the way it went over uh, with that crowd, who, which can be a little bit self-serious at times. Some people were hating on it, apparently, but I also I loved the bit where they went over to the movie theater across the street and surprised the people that were watching a movie. It was, like, totally wild. It felt completely live and unscripted, which is shocking for the Oscars. I mean, this is such a tightly controlled show that for them to go do something like that that felt so unhinged, it felt so CNN New Year's Eve to me. Um, that I was stunned that they actually did it. So, you know, seeing Guillermo del Toro and Lin-Manuel Miranda carrying this six-foot party sub together into a movie theater was one of the highlights of the evening without question. And then you had Gal Gadot once again proving that she's just game for whatever and just one of the most fun people in Hollywood. She was out there handing candy out with Jimmy Kimmel in the movie theater with these regular people sitting there. It was it was cool, man. It was a cool moment. I thought it was fun. It felt truly unscripted, truly live. And it was madness. It was mayhem. But it was cool. It was one of the things I'm really going to remember from the show this year. Now, there was a little bit of awkwardness at the Oscars this year. One guy made a Trump wall joke during his intro for Coco, which nobody got. This song pulls a 12-year-old Mexican boy from the land of the living across the border to the land of the dead, all for the love of his family. Because, you know, in the afterworld, there are no walls. Anyway. I mean, it's not that, like... No one can fault him for making a Trump joke because those are always going to land at the Oscars. But it was just the joke, the way it was constructed. I don't know. It it wasn't it it didn't make sense. And people didn't catch it until I think like he had already moved on. And a few seconds later, I I looked at Beth and I was like, oh, that was a Trump joke. I didn't even realize it. So no one laughed. And it was, you know, very awkward. And then the Star Wars cast went up there and they made some cheesy jokes as well. Some hackneyed stuff. BB-8 wants to know why he's the only one not in a tuxedo. It's delicate. No designer would dress him. I think it's robot discrimination. And nobody really laughed too much at that either. And I also felt like the musical performances didn't sound very good. Like most of them sounded pretty, pretty bad. You know, I I thought uh, Common's performance was pretty good. I thought uh, Sufjan Stevens' performance was pretty good. But uh, the other ones I didn't like very much. I thought they, they sounded pretty bad to me. But maybe the best part of the entire night came from uh, Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph, who went up and made everyone laugh while they were introducing the short films categories, which is an achievement in itself because everyone knows that when the short film categories comes up, come up, that's you know kind of when you go to the bathroom during the show. Nobody has ever seen these movies or will ever see these movies. So the fact that they include them on the telecast is incredible to me. But the fact that it was Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph up there making jokes about how sore their feet were and you know their outfits, it was just it was it was funny. It was legitimately funny. And they just seemed down to earth and cool. And people were actually saying after that that they'd like to see Haddish and Rudolph host uh, the Oscars together themselves or the Golden Globes or something. They could do it. We are so happy to be here, but our feet hurt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to take my shoes off. Girl, me too. I've been wearing these shoes since 11 o'clock this mm-hmm. morning. How long have you been wearing your shoes? Since the Critics' Choice Awards. Oh. <laughs> well, I got blisters bu- bubbling up on the bottom of my foot. Girl, my pinky toe fell off. Oh. <laughs> And uh, finally, I want to say also that the set looked amazing. It was like a ton of crystals adorning the entire set. And yes, it was completely over the top. And it should have made anyone blush who was, you know, thinking about this show not being, um, you know, too ornate or not rubbing Hollywood elitism into anyone's faces. But the set looked looked gorgeous. It was beautiful. I, I can't remember an Oscar set 
ever. I can't remember what an Oscar set ever looked like. And this one, I, I don't know if I'll forget because it was it was beautiful. It was fantastic. I can only imagine being there and seeing the lights shimmering off of all those crystals. It was like hundreds of crystals up there. Um, and it looked beautiful. It looked, it looked gorgeous. It looked like the, the stage was actually, you know, like wearing a tiara. Um, the stage was on the red carpet itself. It was, it was pretty cool. Very over the top, but stunning. So that was the Oscars, you know, overall, I thought it was a good show. I'm always entertained by those shows. I don't get when people rip all over them. The next day, um, I thought Kimmel did a fine job. I thought uh, the movies that won were the right movies. I, I was, you know, happy about the acceptance speeches. I thought they weren't too ham-fisted. They were, you know, fun to listen to, and there were some real human moments in there. But it was just a – I thought it was a solid show. It was a great, good show. I don't know if it was one of the all-time classics. I don't know what makes an Oscar telecast that. I'm not going to go back and re-watch it. But, uh, you know, it was it was a good four hours of entertainment for me, and – as always, I just I love watching the Oscars, man. It's one of my things I look forward to every single year. What'd you think? Do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, write me up at theclintdavis at gmail dot com. You can also hit me on Twitter at Mister Clint Davis. M R Clint Davis. Now, a movie that they paid a little bit of tribute to at the Oscars, but was not nominated for anything this year because, well, it wasn't eligible yet because it was too new. Is Black Panther, the Marvel movie that's been taking over the box office for the last three weeks running and is showing no sign of slowing down, not even Jennifer Lawrence, and her new movie could get in the way of it. Um, and I'm thrilled about it because uh, Beth and I went and checked out Black Panther, and we both loved it. I mean, it, we've watched all the Marvel movies. We've seen every every single one of them, some of them multiple times. And, uh, I mean, I'd put this one right up there with some of their best ones. I, I feel like the Marvel movies have gotten better recently and i think there's a key reason behind that it's because they've been willing they've been showing that they're willing to take risks actually with these properties um that they hadn't been taking before so really since captain america civil war came out um which what was that two years ago um and that to me was that might have been the best marvel movie that they had ever done uh, I feel like they've they've really been on a tear since then, and Black Panther keeps that up. Thor Ragnarok uh, was very good as well, very funny, took a lot of risks. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was better than the first one, I thought, even funnier, um, and had a great villain. And uh, they've they've just been doing some really good things with these movies and taking some chances and, and uh, not boring the audience. And obviously you've got to not bore the actors as well because these are good in-demand actors. And, you know, you can't just keep making the same movie over and over again, which I think they... It would have made sense if they did that because those movies were doing so well. So Black Panther, though, I just want to say that everything you've heard about it and how great it is is true um, because they took a chance. Marvel took a chance here on a character that not many people had really heard of. I mean, this isn't one of the marquee Marvel characters. This is not the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or, you know, it's not any of the ones that you've really heard of. Black Panther's not that big name of a superhero. And... They took a chance on it, and it's paid off huge because people have just had like this instant connection with this movie, with the world it's set in, and with the main character T'Challa, played by Chadwick Boseman, who is um, has really made a name for himself in the last I don't know, like five six years really in uh, playing roles that were based on real people but it's cool to see him playing a part that he can make all his own here as well and show that he's not just an impressionist you know he's not just a guy who can look like Jackie Robinson or be like James Brown or be like Thurgood Marshall he can bring a character to life in his own merits and uh, he definitely proved that here this movie uh, Black Panther is not as loose as like Ant-Man 
or Thor Ragnarok or Guardians of the Galaxy. So if you like the really funny, loose Marvel, then I don't know how much you're going to you know dig Black Panther on that front. But if you like action and if you like drama and if you like for the stories to actually mean a little bit something more, then you will like it because it's got a lot of that going on and it's got the sci-fi stuff. Um, it's got more sci-fi stuff than you know some of the other Marvel movies do. It's good, though, that this movie's not too loose and not too light because Black Panther, unlike a lot of the other, some of the other Marvel movies I listed, actually does deal with some serious issues. Um, oppression is dealt with a lot. You know, slavery is dealt with somewhat. Environmental protection is dealt with heavily in this movie. Diplomacy is dealt with. It's probably the weightiest Marvel movie that they've ever ever made because, you know, it brings up some legitimate questions about diplomacy, like I said, and when wealthy nations should come to the aid of smaller ones. Like when is when is it right? When when do wealthy countries need to get involved in smaller countries' affairs because they have the power to, you know, to to make a change, to make a positive change and to make something happen. So those kind of things are, are you know, discussed in this movie and they're discussed to to great effect because of the villain who is played by the great Michael B. Jordan. Uh, Eric Killmonger is the character's name. And, I mean, he's one of the most memorable parts of this movie, and it's got a lot of memorable parts. And the key I've always maintained to any great Marvel movie, what separates the great ones from the bad ones, or the mediocre, there really hasn't been a bad one, but the mediocre ones from the great ones um, have been the villains. You know, it's always about the villain. you got to have a great villain. It's like the Bond movies in that way. you got to have a great villain, and it kind of starts there, because you know what you're going to get from the heroes almost every time. Um, and here they have a fantastic villain, one who really, you know, you buy and you understand, and he's not just nuts. Like you get where he's coming from and a couple of things that he says and that he stands for, you, you feel like, Hey, you know, I, I understand if I was in his shoes, I think I would, I think it makes sense. And they give him a good backstory and they did some work on this character that they don't always do on the villain. I lived my entire life waiting for this moment. I trained, I lied, I killed just to get here. I killed in America. Afghanistan. Iraq. I took life from my own brothers and sisters right here on this continent. And all this death. Just so I could kill you. So there's some some big questions being asked in this movie, and that's one of the things that makes it so great. But it's also just a fun movie, and it's one hell of a fantasy. I mean, I just have to imagine that for black audiences especially, this movie has to be the most exciting and awe-inspiring blockbuster maybe ever made. I mean, honestly, the idea that kids of color, boys and girls— of color especially, have never really had a hero like this. And it's not just Black Panther, T'Challa, the main character who's the hero. He's like a team. He's got a team of people that he works with, his sister and one of his, you know, his ex-girlfriend and you know some other people, the general from uh, Wakanda, the nation that he represents. Um, this team, like, he couldn't do it without him. So it's he really, he's not like a Batman, a Superman, um kind of guy who can do everything on his own he needs the help of his team and uh, that makes him even more relatable and it also reinforces a more positive message for kids i feel like of relying on others and you know letting others help you in in achieving something you don't have to do it all on your own you don't have to be a lone wolf as so many of these superheroes always are and the marvel superheroes they're almost always like these lone wolf characters um 
but this is what's really cool about Black Panther is that he's not at all. He's a total, like, he's got to have his team or he wouldn't be able to do half the things that he does in this movie. He couldn't do it on his own. He just doesn't, like, he doesn't do the gadget technical stuff. That's not his expertise. He's not He's not good at that. So he leaves that to his sister, who's brilliant in those things. Um, so this isn't a guy who could do it all, which, again, I think makes him even a better hero because he's more relatable. But the idea that kids of color have never had a character like this on screen that they could feel personally connected to um, and look up to. It's really sad, you know, that there hasn't been a character like this in a movie like this that kids can go see and really look at and see themselves in. And it's a really sad thing because you take it for granted when you're white and all the movies that you've seen over time, all the Disney movies, everything, it's always, you know, white heroes, white men and women um, in in the big heroic roles. And it's sad that there just hasn't been that for people of color in so long. So... The fact that now they have this great movie that's done so well, I think, you know, this really could be a turning point. I don't know. We'll see. But um, it's they really did a nice job with it. Disney Marvel nailed this one and the entire cast nailed it, which I'm going to give a lot of credit to Ryan Coogler, the director, who is just one of the best directors working in cinema right now. Anyway, um, Fruitvale Station, beautiful movie, made me cry in theaters when I went and saw it. Uh, Creed, his take on the Rocky franchise was Oscar nominated. It was a fantastic film. Um, one of the best sports movies I've seen in years. And then he, he gets the reins to Black Panther and he just knocks it out of the park, even though this is the first superhero movie he's ever done. First action movie that he had ever done. And he nailed it. He's a great director. And I think he got, you know, very strong performances out of everyone in this cast. The original music also was great. Kendrick Lamar oversaw the, the soundtrack and it's just very fresh, very new sounds, you know, even more fresh than any of the other uh, music you're going to hear in the other Marvel movies. And everything in the movie felt so dignified as well is one of the things I really liked about this. This movie has these really intense action sequences. It's got these, this high tech car chase. That's really intense. It's got the, the origin story stuff, but it all feels so much more dignified than most other superhero movies do. This movie never makes Wakanda or T'Challa look bad at all. It doesn't disrespect them at all. It holds them up high. And in the end, when the song cranks up, All the Stars, which is by Kendrick Lamar and SZA, when it cranks up over the end credits, it was my favorite credits track from any of the Marvel movies since Iron Man when they blasted Black Sabbath's Iron Man over the ending of the the credits, and it was just like the craziest, coolest thing you'd ever seen in your life. Um, this is the the best in credits moment I've seen since then. I mean, that was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. That was ten years ago, and now they finally, um, I think, topped that with the in credits to this one. So. Really cool. I loved it. Black Panther gave the Marvel Universe some much needed new blood. And it showed us that, you know, if the Avengers actors start walking away soon, which I imagine they're going to have to probably start walking away soon, especially Downey. Um, you know, I mean, you, you can't, I don't know how much longer he's going to do it. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to be in very good hands for a while, even if those actors start walking away because of people like Chadwick Boseman, Ryan Coogler, um, and the rest of the cast of. Uh, of Black Panther. Just a fantastic movie, great achievement for Disney and a great achievement for the Marvel Universe. Run out and see it, man. You're you're not going to be disappointed. Tell me what you going to do, Timmy. 
Confrontation ain't nothing new to me. You can bring a bullet, bring a sword, bring a morgue, but you can't bring the truth to me. All right, finally, let me give you a couple other movie recommendations. One on Netflix, one on Amazon, as always, before I send you out the door. First off on Netflix from 1998. It's Jim Carrey in The Truman Show with Ed Harris. What a great uh, what a great little gem of a movie this one is. Um, and one of the first ones that showed us how solid an actor Jim Carrey really can be if you give him some serious material to work with. Um, and, I mean, this movie's not deadly serious all the time. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite have the dramatic heights of, like, a, an Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or some other things that Jim Carrey would do later. But it's a, it's a really great mix of drama and comedy. And it's, it's really sad, and it's got some great statements about, um, you know, about television, about our culture, um, voyeurism. And it's like a 1984 kind of thing. And if you've never seen it, The Truman Show is all about this guy named Truman, played by Jim Carrey, who lives in this fake world where everything there's cameras all over the place. He's been filmed since he was born. He was his, you know, parents. I, I can't remember what the backstory is, but they like put him in this reality show for his entire life, and everything in the world is constructed. And there's this director up in the sky, played by Ed Harris, and people around the world watch this show all the time. It's just broadcast live, 24 hours a day. Um, and the world they set up is so convincing and so well done and imaginative. Um, and it's just like a long episode of The Twilight Zone. The whole thing is. But it's really heartfelt. It's not um, a movie that like pulls the rug out from under you at all. You go along with it. You know you you know what's going on from the start, so it doesn't rely on surprises. Uh, and it's just a great performance from Jim Carrey, a really good vehicle for him, and a strong movie. I love this movie. It's a, it's a little gem of the 90s. The Truman Show from 1998. That's on Netflix now. And on Amazon, I was talking about it before, Creed from 2015, Ryan Coogler, the guy who directed Black Panther. If you like Black Panther, give Creed a watch. It's on Amazon right now. Michael B. Jordan stars in it as the son of Apollo Creed, the boxer who was played by Carl Weathers in um, you know, a couple of the Rocky movies and was the great rival of Rocky Balboa back in the day. And this was a really cool way to take the Rocky franchise into the next generation, give it some fresh blood. And the cast, again, top to bottom, very strong. Sly Stallone does some of the best work of his career in this movie, actually. Um, he got nominated for an Oscar. Michael B. Jordan should have been nominated for an Oscar, was not. Uh, but it's a very strong movie and uh, couldn't recommend Creed more. That is on Amazon right now for you to watch. All right, that's going to do it. I'm going to uh, slide out of here, uh, enjoy the rest of my stick, and I will uh, talk to you guys in about a month. Check us out online at OverdueReview.com. We will uh, uh, be, of course, putting up some more material over there. I just wrote a review about Just Cause. If you like to read me shitting all over movies, then you will probably enjoy that one because... Well, this one deserved it. Let's just put it that way. Uh, once again, I'm Movies and TV Editor at Overdue Review, Clint Davis. You can reach me uh, by email at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com, and on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. Uh, thank you very much for listening, my friend. I'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.